Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. In the midst of all this crazy chaos, uh, it's, it's not any different than what it was like in the first century when Messiah was born. There was chaos going around in the society. Uh, religious leaders had a chokehold on the political elements. And, and it, just like today, it's no different. And even going back to the days of Isaiah, times were chaotic. The Assyrians were about to attack Israel. And there was Baal worship all over the place. There was, uh, Israel was going into apostasy. And with all that said, in the midst of chaos, God had a message. And he sent this message, the message of Emmanuel. And the message of, of, of Emmanuel, like we, sung, uh, we uh, sang about, was God's uh, joy and truth that I'm going to send this one to set things right. So guys, can you get my thing on the screen? Or are we having problems? Are we on? Are we not on? Hello. Here we go. There we go. Here we go. And so... In the midst of this, he gives this discourse in, in Isaiah. And I, from Isaiah chapter 7 to chapter 12, it's called the book of Emmanuel. And it's a, the promise of this coming redeemer. Now, here's the thing which you have to understand about this. Because the scriptures are very evident. It's very plain what it says about this coming one. And... As much as I love Israel and I support Israel, at the time of the Messiah, when he arrived, Judaism had been perverted. It had been perverted by the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, had totally turned Judaism into what we call now rabbinic Judaism. That differed from the original Mosaic Judaism. Mosaic Judaism was the one true faith, and that's where the remnant lied. But by the time Israel was exiled into the Babylonian captivity and they came back from Babylon, what started happening in the schools of Israel was additional laws upon laws upon laws. We call this the fence around the Torah so that Israel wouldn't violate the, the, the 613 commands and it added more and added more. And then basically what happened is the, the rabbis made commentaries after commentaries after commentaries after commentaries and all you had was eventually a foreign religion called rabbinic Judaism that was so different than Mosaic Judaism that by the first century... They couldn't recognize Jesus. That's how far it had been taken. And, and, and fortunately, you know, when I go to Israel, we were just in Israel a couple weeks ago, and we talked to the Messianic believers there, the Jewish believers in Yeshua. Um, they have the same problem today with Israel. And, 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 and there, there's about 30,000 Messianic Jews now there in Israel. And um, they're looked at as Nazis. They're looked at as traitors to uh, the Jewish heritage. And it's like, no, they're not traitors. They're not Nazis. They're a completed Jew. And, and they have a, a hard time witnessing. But you know why they have a hard time witnessing? It is because of what the rabbis have done. That's the problem. I love Israel. I support the Jewish people. But those rabbis 
are doing something to Israel that's keeping them blinded from seeing their true Messiah. And that's the hard part that the Messianic believers are having there. Now here's the thing. The rabbis today and, and the, the rabbis in the first century will all say the same thing. It's been, they've been saying it for 2,000 years. Jesus did not fit the rabbinical, notice what I said, rabbinical outlook for the Messiah. They, they saw the Messiah as being a political leader that would take care of Rome. Unfortunately, what the rabbis had done is ignore the suffering servant passages on purpose and downgraded the prophet Isaiah and the other passages that spoke of how Messiah would come in the first coming. And they ignored the Ben Joseph, the suffering servant, and then highlighted the Ben David, the glorious Messiah, which we now know will be the second coming. And that was on purpose, guys. And today it's on purpose. Because I'm going to show you today what the Hebrew says. And it cannot be ignored that Emmanuel is God with us. The Messiah is not just a man. And so let me start with the, with the principle. The principle is this. As you know, there are people in our world that they see the truth and they don't like it. And so what they do is they manipulate that truth and, and create a different narrative, an alternative perception, an alternative reality. We see that in politics, right? They do it all the time. Narratives that have no basis in facts or evidence, and yet they go with it. So we have the manipulators, and then you have the people that follow the manipulators because they identify with a certain group. And they identify with this group, and instead of independently thinking for themselves, they just do what the group tells them to do. The leaders of the group tell them to do. This is why you see such craziness, such as, Queers for Palestine. Because that's it's just stupid, right? But again, why? They believe their group, the left, who is against Israel, should be for Palestine and Hamas. But again, they're not thinking. They're just identifying with what they believe the group tells them to do, and that's who they're supposed to be against, without even thinking, right? That's how a lot of people are, Okay? I'm showing you something. That's what was going on and is currently going on in Judaism. Not in Israel, but I'm, I'm focusing on the religion of Judaism. Rabbis are telling the group, you must believe this about Jesus. And in order to identify with being a Jew, you must agree with the rabbis. That's hogwash. Okay, that's hogwash. They're, the rabbis are taking them away from the Tanakh. They're taking them away from the scriptures, their Old Testament. Now, let's go one step further. What happens to an individual that refuses to think on their own, refuses to look at facts and evidence that's happening on the ground, and instead just goes with what their group identification is? What, what happens to that individual? I can tell you what happens. They lose themselves. They become absorbed into the mass psychosis, 
the mass hysteria. They go into group think and they don't think for themselves anymore. That is scary, but that's where a lot of our young people are going today. They don't think for themselves. They don't care about facts or evidence. They just care about the group identification and whatever TikTok's telling them to do. That's what it really becomes, and that's really scary because if you don't think for yourself, you will lose your identity. You will lose who you are. You will lose your life, and your life will be ruled by some idiot manipulating facts and evidence for you. And you will be a slave to them and not even know that. That's the situation that happened in the first century with Jesus. It is the situation that is currently going on today, whether Jew or Gentile. I'm not picking on anyone. It's everybody. And the scriptures are very plain about who Messiah is. Now, I want to show you right now a clip from uh, Dr. William Lane Craig talking to Ben Shapiro. I love Ben Shapiro. He's on our side as far as, you know, getting our back to our biblical values. I like Ben. But I want you to listen to Ben on his take on Israel, sorry, on, 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 on Jesus because he just simply repeats what he's been taught by the rabbis instead of independently looking at the scriptures and what the scriptures say. Listen to this. So from the Jewish perspective, the, this, this narrative has some, some holes in sort of Jewish philosophy. Uh, the, the narrative begins with the idea that Jesus appears in front of the Sanhedrin and then claims to be the Messiah. Well, there's nothing actual criminally in, in any of the tractates that say that if you declare yourself the Messiah, this is actually right. a punishment, a punishable offense even. Right. That, there, there are many Jews, including Bar Kokhba, who have declared themselves messianic figures. Absolutely. The, the real gap here is that in the Gospels, Jesus' vision of himself as the Messiah is completely different from the prior vision of what the Jewish Messiah is and is actually outside the scope of how Jews describe the Messiah or really have ever described the Messiah. The Messiah in Judaism has always been a political figure who is destined to do certain things, restoring the kingdom of Israel, uh, re maintaining control of that kingdom, uh, bringing more Jews back to Israel. All of these things are considered sort of political things that the Messiah does. But the idea of the Messiah as embodiment of God is something that's foreign to Jewish religious philosophy going all the way back to the beginning. So even the idea that the Sanhedrin would be questioning him in those terms and would get from that, that what he means is, I am God, which would be a much more punishable offense, presumably that would be actual uh -huh. blasphemy. That, that's, it's, it's an oddity. <laughs> wow, I love Ben. I love Ben. But, and he's right in one sense. Ben, you're right. Because of the de-evolution de of Judaism in the first century, by the time Jesus arrives, they had seen and, and manipulated the scriptures to have a political Messiah figure and only focus on that, those second coming passages. And because of that, when Jesus shows up in fulfillment of what the Old Testament is saying, he does appear radically different than what the rabbis taught because they're so far away from the scripture, him being in concert with the scripture makes him look way different. But what did the scripture say? So my question then to Ben is, Ben, have you actually ever studied what your prophet said Messiah would look like? Not what your rabbis say, not what the, your synagogue says. What does the Tanakh say? And when you look at it, 
you will see how far the rabbis are off and why they're off. Again, this is not to bash Israel because my heart is to reach out to the Jewish people that they get saved, but the, the, the rabbis are keeping them deceived. So let's take a look at the Emmanuel book of Isaiah, which is from chapter 7 to chapter 12. Let's get the context. The context is Assyria threatens Israel and Judah. By this time, Israel and Judah have separated, and there's two countries at this point in time. What is happening now is Aram in the green and Israel in the north have teamed up together and saying, we've got to be able to fight um, the Assyrians because they're coming to attack. So they try to get Judah, as you can see in the purple, to come alongside of them, okay? And the, the thing about it is, Judah is ruled by King Ahaz. Ahaz is a wicked king, but he is from the line of David. So he's a legitimate king, even though he's wicked. Now, this is funny. This king, Ahaz, does not want to get into an alliance with Israel and Aram. What this king does is he actually wants an alliance with Assyria so that Assyria doesn't attack him and he becomes their friend. So what ha what's going on here is King Rezin and Pekah of Aram and Israel say, we don't like how this guy is running things, so we're going to get rid of him and put our own king in there by the, king, uh, that, by the house of name of Tabil. And it sounds eerily familiar in politics when we don't like this president, so we're going to put in our own president because we don't like his narrative. We want someone that goes on our narrative. So the political intrigue was happening back then as it is today. Nothing has changed, okay? But what's the point? Why do I tell you all that background? Because you have to know the background because this is the context in which the Emmanuel prophecies are then given. So what is at threat here is they are threatening the line of David by taking Ahaz out and putting in another house to rule. God is not going to allow this. Even as wicked as Ahaz is, God is going to preserve David's line because guess who comes through David's line? Emmanuel will come through it. So here's, here's, that's the context. Now here's where we go into the text. So God speaks to Isaiah, and Isaiah is going to prophesy to Ahaz. And he says this, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, don't think that Ahaz is, is Mr. Religious, or he's being pietistic at all. Um, he's, he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which means that when God gives a prophecy, you're not to challenge that prophecy by asking God to confirm it with a sign. You're not to do that. You're, that's a test of the Lord. So he feigns religiosity because he doesn't want the answer. Because the answer would be, trust God, not Assyria for your, for your partner. And so he says, oh, no, 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 I'm too religious. I don't want to offend the Lord. I'm not going to ask anything. Okay. And God then overrides it. God then is going to get the prophecy of Emmanuel and explain in the next few chapters how God will preserve the Davidic line and who through. So then in verse 13 he says, Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. 
Notice who it's addressed to, not Ahaz, but the house of David and to all of Israel. Now, what you're gonna see in your English is you, the word you, but in Hebrew, um, it's hard to translate this, it's you all. So you gotta go country a little bit, okay? And you gotta go a little southern, and you have to say you all. So now it's addressed to all of Israel. So he says, it is a small thing for you all, to weary men, but will you all weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Behold, or hene, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, so that's the sign. Now let's unpack this and parse it out in the Hebrew, okay? Because this is what I want to show you of where the argument is. When you see the word behold, it's hene in Hebrew. And hene is used 43 times by the prophet Isaiah. And when hene or is used 43 times, it is typically used by an active participle, which is the, word, is the, is the phrase, shall conceive. What does that mean? It doesn't mean it is a contemporary prophecy that will happen in the life of Ahaz or will happen in the life of Isaiah. Hene, active participle, means it will happen in the future. So the rabbis will misinterpret that on purpose to say, oh, he was referring to Isaiah's wife or he's referring to Ahaz's wife contemporarily. But Isaiah never does that with the hene part, uh, 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 active participle. You can't do that. The rules of Hebrew won't let you. Oh, let's go back to my original point. Why would anybody not follow the evidence, not follow the facts, and manipulate the data. Hmm, let's continue on. The virgin, which is ha-alma, which is translated a young pubescent virgin, okay, shall conceive and bear a son. So let's talk about um, the virgin. Let's talk about the word alma. Okay, so what we have here, the rabbis, what we understand, have purposely rejected that Alma means virgin, okay, and insist that it means young woman. It doesn't mean young woman. It means precisely how Isaiah used it. It means virgin. So they just totally negate this. Here's the problem, and let me give you the evidence if you ever have a discussion like this. The cognate studies of the Semitic languages all affirm that the way Alma is used in Isaiah is consistent with all the cognitive languages that, that, that are Semitic in nature. For instance, Ugaritic, Arabic, Phoenician, Babylonian, Abelite, and Aramaic all have the same root, Am, and in every language cognate, it is virgin, Okay? The Hebrew is not the exception to the rule. It is consistent with the cognate language. Let me add number two. When the Israel's rabbis decided to interpret the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, and they wanted to put it in Greek, they did this in 200 B, 250 B.C. When they translated it from Hebrew, uh, from Hebrew to Greek, they chose the Greek word for Alma, and it's right there, Parthenos. 
Now, here's what you have to understand about Greek. Greek is the most precise language on the planet, okay? You can't get more precise than Greek. And Parthenos means, guess what? Virgin. So the Jews who interpreted the Septuagint translated it properly and said, Isaiah is referring to a virgin. So it tells you the time frame in which the rabbi started manipulating the Isaiah passage. It had to be after 250 BC because they go against what the Septuagint is saying. Let me add some other history to you. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they predated everything we had by a thousand years. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what word they use? Ha-alma, for virgin. You cannot deny that. Okay, that was written by the Essenes, by the way, in the time of Jesus. Furthermore, the Hebrew Bible uses the word alma seven times. And in all seven times, it refers to a virgin, never referring to a non-virgin. And now what the rabbis will say today, they will make the arguments on their internet and say, well, if Isaiah wanted to use virgin, he would have used the word Bethula. Sorry. Bethula is too nebulous. Bethula can be used for a virgin, but it can also be used for a married woman regardless of age. And so when you read, like uh, it'll say in English, and the virgin did this, and if it's translated Bethula, it will always have a qualifier with it because it's imprecise. And it will say, she was a virgin and she did not know a man. And that's how it will qualify it every time you see it in the, in the, in the, in the, the passages. But when Alma is used, it's a laser beam. There is no mistaking of it. It's virgin. And rabbis know this. But the rabbis keep this from their people. Other Jewish scholars, non-Christian scholars, non-Christian scholars, these are their scholars, even admit it. So in this one, Cyrus Gordon, notice what he says. The New Testament rendering of Alma as virgin for Isaiah 7.14 rests on the older Jewish interpretation, which is, is turned which in turn is now born out of precisely the enunciation formula by the text that is not only pre-Isianic, that's before 722 BC, pre-Isianic, but he even goes further, but is pre-Mosaic in the form that we now have it on clay tablets. What do you mean? It means that the ancient Hebrews interpreted this passage the way they use the word pre-Moses. You're talking about 13, 1400 BC. So something happened. Someone's fiddling around with the text and it could have only happened between 250 BC and zero. Somebody was monkeying around with the text and that monkeying around with the text was done because of the rabbinic schools. The Sopharim, which eventually turned into the Pharisees and eventually the Sanhedrin. And today we have a modern day rabbi that is doing this and deceiving the Jewish people from their Messiah. Abraham Farisal mentioned, he agrees, it should be translated virgin. David Berger, Daniel Lasker, these are all Jewish scholars, not believers in Yeshua. All agree that this is the way it should be translated. Okay, what's the conclusion before we move on? Alma refers 
never refers to a married woman. It always refers to a a pubescent, unmarried virgin. And so you only have two options, guys. Whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a Jew, you only have two options with the Isaiah passage. Here's your options. God is doing a miracle. He says it's going to be a sign for Israel to preserve the Davidic line. And that sign is this, a virgin conception. That's the miracle. The other option you have is a pubescent girl, unmarried, gets illegitimately pregnant, and then that's your sign. Well, I'm sorry, God doesn't do miracles where there's sin involved. If she's illegitimately pregnant, that means she got pregnant out of wedlock. So if it's not a virgin conception, your only option is, well, it's an, uh, she got uh, pregnant outside of wedlock, which God would never use for a sign. So then you're left as, as, uh, as a Gentile or a Jew with one option. You either accept the virgin birth or you reject it. That's it. But notice this. This is what the rabbis don't want to point out to the Jewish people. This is what they withhold from them. Behold the virgin. It doesn't say, behold a virgin, some virgin. It's a definite article. How do I know it's a definite article? Because here's the thing. If you know a little Hebrew, and I'll teach you to right now, I'll show you where the the is. So if you look at the Hebrew word that I put on there, remember Hebrew, you got to write, you read right to left. Okay, it's opposite than English. So what you have is a he, ayin, lamed, a mem, and then a he. So the word, there's a, a the there. The the is the he, which is the first letter on the right-hand side with a little T underneath it. It looks like a T. That little T is the vowel. Okay? So the, 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 uh, the letter K is the letter H. Okay? And it has ha. And then the, 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 the T is a long A. So ha. And then you have the word ayin, lamed, mem, ha, alma. So it's ha, alma. The virgin. And the rabbis don't want to consider the ha before Alma. Because you know why? It points to someone. It would be better if it didn't have the ha and it just said any virgin, any young lady. No, 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 no. Okay, so then what are the rules of Hebrew? Follow me on this or I'll lose you like a wet bar of soap in the shower. Okay? What are the rules of Hebrew? So if I'm reading in context, the virgin, I am supposed to, as my, in my, my Hebrew hermeneutics, look for the antecedent. So either Isaiah has mentioned a woman that is the virgin, because he's assuming that you already know who the virgin is. So I'm looking in the antecedent, and this is where Rashi is wrong, and David Kamichi uh, is wrong. These are rabbis. Because they'll say, well, the virgin must refer to Isaiah's wife, or it must refer to Ahaz's wife. No, because not in the chapter or in the context are those wives mentioned. You have to have someone that's been identified, and you don't. So what do you do? You go through Isaiah, you go backwards, you go backwards, you go back, and you can't find it in Isaiah. Huh. Then what do you do? Second rule. 
you must then employ the law of first reference or the initial reference to the virgin. Huh. So I go back, go back, go back, go back, and I finally find her. Guess where she's at? Guess where the virgin is mentioned? Genesis 3.15. How so? Let's unpack it. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Obviously, he's talking to the serpent, representing Satan, obviously. You know that. And then talking, her seed, obviously, is the, the anointed one, the Messiah, right? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And obviously, Messiah is, is uh, destined to crush the serpent, which he will, and he did at the cross, and will finally throw him into the lake of fire. Okay, so you know that. But notice what it says in the underline between your seed, well, the, uh, uh, Satan's seed is the Antichrist, okay? So that's a, that's a prophecy about the Antichrist in there. But her seed is who? Jesus, right? Messiah? But it says her seed. That is so unhebraic. And Moses is trying to get your attention by saying that. What do you mean? Because only males produce seeds. It discloses to you on a Sunday morning, but seed means sperm. Okay, there it is. It's out. That's what it means, okay? That's the only way you're going to understand this. So Moses is saying, wait a second. Kids are born by the seed of the male. The male implants the seed in the woman, and she has a baby, right? So we all got that, birds and bees. Okay, got it. But Moses is saying, uh-uh. Uh-uh. It's the seed of the woman. There's no man. So what's Moses implying? A virgin. Thank you. Moses is saying in 3.15, it's the virgin. It's, she, the, the Messiah is going to come by a vir, uh, the virgin. Now, no one knew who the virgin was. But in Jewish context... Every Jewish woman dreamed about the possibility of one day birthing the Messiah. And hence, the nickname that got put on Mosaic Judaism was the desire of women. Daniel chapter 11. So Judaism was called the desire of women because all Jewish women said, maybe it's me that's going to be able to birth the Messiah. And so, the Virgin is then identified by Matthew. Now, the birth of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Miriam, who's named after Moses' sister, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Bingo. I found her. I found her. And now I'm being told by Matthew how the virgin conception happened. It was of the Holy Spirit. Okay, what did the Holy Spirit do? Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, what you, take to you Miriam, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is what? 
of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Yeshua for he will save his people from their sins. Ah, we got it. She's the virgin that Genesis 3.15 mentions, that Isaiah 7 mentions, and now she is there and she has a virgin conception. Now God is telling you, let me tell you how I did the miracle. The miracle was done by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who actually is the one who created the human nature for the second person of the Trinity. So the third person of the Trinity created in Mary's womb the virgin conception. We have our answer, which follows up with, with Isaiah and Genesis 3.15. Okay, wait a second. We're not done yet. It says this, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So what does that mean? Well, when you break it down in the Hebrew, im means with, anu means us, and el is short for Elohim. Im anu el. You will call him God with us. Now in the Hebrew culture, in, in the ancient culture, naming, obviously when you name somebody or even when Adam named the animal, it means authority. So Yahweh, his authority, the ultimate authority, is telling Isaiah that, the, that, that you will name him God with us, Elohim with us. And, and so it is referring to the character, not only of the, the person, but of the nature, the nature of the individual. That's what he is saying. That this one is God with you, Israel. He is not just a man. It is God with you. Oh. So what's our conclusion? The virgin conceived a son that will be obviously from the line of David. He's going to be human. No doubt about that. But it necessitates his right to rule on David's throne. And he is also, by the way, Elohim. Which means... The Messiah is the king of Israel, but he is the God-man. So when Ben Shapiro says, well, Jesus claiming to be God was so foreign to uh, you know, the, the, the rabbis of the day, well, yes, of course, because they weren't following the scriptures. The scripture says he's going to be Elohim. It was not something brand new that Jesus sprung on them and everyone was shocked by it. The reason that they were so surprised is because of what the rabbis were teaching during the day. And they were, they were shielding the Jewish people from their own Messiah, for goodness sakes. It breaks my heart every time. The Emmanuel prophecies continue. Be shattered, O you peoples. Be broken in pieces. Give ear, all of you from far countries. Gird yourself, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourself, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. Emmanuel. What do you mean? Well, God is telling them, and so you move from Isaiah 7, then you move to Isaiah 8. We're going all the way to chapter 12. What is God saying? He's saying, look, Ahaz, no one will be able to destroy the Davidic line until Emmanuel shows up. So I don't care what they try to do. They, I will preserve the line. 
And there was many, many times, man, when that line was on the fringe, man, barely hanging on, down to just a few couple of people. And it was, it was teetering in the balance. But God always preserved that line because Emmanuel was coming through it. And that's what he's saying. They can do anything they want, but they won't stop Emmanuel coming. That's what he is saying. Now, let me show you the genealogy. Since we're talking about Christmas, Matthew will give a genealogy, and then Luke gives a genealogy. Now, when Matthew, Matthew's written to the Jews, Luke's typically written to Greeks. But anyway, the genealogies are in both. But what's the point? When you look at Matthew's genealogy, it goes through Solomon, obviously, and then it hits to Yeconiah, okay? He is cursed. God curses him, and, and anyone from that line cannot rule. And that line ends up with Joseph, okay? Then you go to Luke, and you have the line coming from Nathan all the way to Miriam. And obviously, he's the seed of Miriam, right? He's the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Miriam. But does Jesus have an earthly father? No. So then why would Matthew put in a genealogy that is cursed that anyone from that genealogy cannot rule? Do you know why? Because Matthew anticipates the rabbinic Judaism pointing out that Jesus' earthly father is Joseph and Joseph's line is cursed, therefore Jesus can't rule. So Matthew's point to them is, yeah, I know, but guess what? He's the seed of the woman. He doesn't come from Joseph. He comes from Miriam, who goes through Nathan. Bingo! And it left them speechless. Because, they go, because he's virgin born. He doesn't come from Joseph. That's why Matthew shows that genealogy. He anticipates antagonism. But what's the point, though? Remember, what did God say? Do anything you want, but you're not going to stop Emmanuel coming. And, 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 and so he will preserve the line. So guess what? This line will continue until Emmanuel is born, and then the Messiah must come before 70 AD. Why? What happened in 70 AD? Well, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, right? As predicted by Messiah, as a penalty for the unpardonable sin, didn't he not? And, and, and not one stone would be left on another. The temple would be destroyed. Jerusalem would be destroyed. And according to Josephus, 1.2 uh, million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. No doubt about that. We know that historically, and, and Messiah predicted that for a penalty as the unpardonable sin. Okay. Something happened in the temple. There was something in the temple that kept records of what? They kept in the temple all the genealogical records of all the Jews. So if you wanted to know what tribe you were from, you went to the temple and the temple would tell you who your father is, who your grandfather is, and go all the way back to Abraham. They had every genealogical record in the temple. Well, guess what? When the Romans destroyed the temple, all the genealogical records disappeared and were burned and destroyed. That is why, unless you're doing genetics, and you can find out if you have a, an ancestor, and the, the tribe of Levi is finding that out through DNA, but if not, no Jew alive today knows what tribe they're from. 
No one knows if they're from the line of David, if they're from the tribe of Benjamin or Judah. They don't know because the records were destroyed. And like I said, DNA research is now finding out there's a common ancestor with the, uh, the Levitical Cohen or Levitt or Levite last names. They, have a, uh, they, have, they find their ancestor. Get this. Their ancestor, all of them have a common ancestor, and that ancestor goes all the way back to 1400 B.C. I wonder who that ancestor is. That's Aaron. But anyway, but none of the mother know. No. So here's the point. Messiah has to come before the records are destroyed. Well, Messiah did. Therefore, what I would pray and hope that Israel, that Messiah has already come, do not look for the man with the plan who's going to pretend to be the Messiah, the Antichrist, because he, anything after 70 AD is not the Messiah. Bar Kopla, or anyone else for that matter, the Antichrist. My heart breaks because of that. Notice what Isaiah says. He will be a sanctuary to who? The remnant of Israel. To the Gentiles, anyone that accepts Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, he becomes a sanctuary to you, doesn't he? But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, talking about Israel and Judah, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What, what, who are the inhabitants of Jerusalem? He is pinpointing the religious leaders who were in Jerusalem, who knew who he was, knew he had claimed to be God, knew he was in doing the Messianic miracles, and then handed him over to Pilate for sedition, to be crucified. So he's a trap for them. And many among them sh shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. So the idea is this, what Isaiah is trying to say. This is the rock. According to the psalmist, Messiah is this cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone of Israel. And every foundation is set on the chief cornerstone. That's how you build the house is upon him. And that chief cornerstone gives you the angles to build the house. That cornerstone is rejected. And that stone then, if you accept him, becomes a sanctuary. How so? He becomes a sanctuary if you accept him because then you build your life on the rock instead of shifting sand. He is your sanctuary in which you build your life if you accept him. But, make no mistake, if you decide that you will not accept the rock, the cornerstone, the cornerstone turns over and you're underneath and will crush you. That is what he means by the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. Either you build your life on Messiah or he will eventually crush you. There is no middle ground. There is no patronizing Jesus saying he's just a good man. He's just a good teacher. He's a moralist. You either are building your life on him or he'll eventually crush you. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Now, here's the thing. Did the remnant of that day when Jesus came know this? Well, yes. Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus for circumcision, be dedicated. Who do they meet? Simeon and Anna, part of the remnant. Part of the remnant that doesn't believe what Judaism teaches, but believes what the scriptures teach. Then Simeon blessed them and said, Mary, Miriam, 
his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. What's that a reference to? The fall, of, the fall breaking, but the rock will crush them. The rising, you build your, 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 your life on the rock. It's Isaiah. Simeon is quoting Isaiah to Miriam. And for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also when she sees him rejected and crucified, right? And that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon knows what you and I are studying. They know Isaiah, him and Anna. See, here's the thing. Not all of Israel went along with the crowd of, 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 of rabbinic Judaism. They said, that's wrong. They knew what scripture taught them. And that's why they said, that's it, it's him. It's him. They knew. Now, here's the thing. What does it mean to Israel or even to a Gentile that Jesus becomes a rock of offense, a stumbling block? Well, Paul points this out. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. What does he mean by this? Israel's Judaism Again, remember, rabbinic Judaism different than Mosaic Judaism. Mosaic Judaism always taught by faith alone, always. Rabbinic Judaism then progressed into saying, number one, you're saved if you're a Jew, and number two, you're saved by keeping the law, that you earn your righteousness by keeping the law, okay? That's what it devolved into. That was wrong. It's still the problem today. In all false religions, whether it's Judaism, Mormonism, Catholicism, it's all works-based, right? So he goes, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but is as it were by the works of the law. They tried to attain their righteousness through good works. For they stumble at the stumbling stone, Isaiah, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of events. There's uh, Paul po uh, pointing that out. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Simple. Jew and Gentile alike. Just believe. Believe, don't think, most people, here's what their mindset is. It was Judaism or whatever. If I'm a good person, my good works will outweigh my bad. I'm a good person. I haven't murdered anybody. Well, yeah, but have you hated somebody? Well, you have murder in your heart. You're guilty of murder. I'm sorry. You commit one sin, you're guilty of the entire law. That was the point. So if you're guilty of the entire law, you will be condemned. But what's the answer? Messiah. Messiah lived and kept the law for you, gives you his righteousness, and gives you his death so you can be forgiven and have an atonement. That's how it is. It's by faith. That's it. Now we move to the arrival of Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So the idea is he's a human being, a child is born, but he's virginly conceived. But notice what it says, unto us a son is given. What son? Because this son is given by God. He's not born, he's given. The human is born, but there's a son that's given. What does this refer to? Well, in the background of all of this is the messianic son of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. That's what Isaiah is referring to. And everybody in the Hebrew understanding would know this. But again, do the rabbis want to point this out? No, because we have a problem. Because the titles that are going to be given to Emmanuel are only titles given to God. Now, Jesus brought this up. Because he said, again, Pharisees had devolved into not thinking the Messiah is God or Emmanuel anymore, but he was just a political figure, human. 
But look what Jesus said to them. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Ha, really? Okay, yes, true, partly. He said to them, how then does David in the Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit who wrote the psalm, call him Adonai? Oh, yeah. Got a problem. And then Jesus quotes it. Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. <laughs> if David then calls him Adonai, how is he his son? You get what he's trying to do? Look what, the, look what it did. It left him speechless. And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. He put it to the ringer. You explain to me Psalm 110 then, Pharisees. If you don't think the Messiah is the God-man, then why does uh, one Yahweh talk to another Lord like that and he's David's Lord? How could he do that if the, the Messiah is not the Son of God? How could he say that? And they didn't know how to answer him because he caught them. He, they knew it. They knew it. Psalm 2 talks about the messianic son. Why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the anointed is the Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That's what people do today. We don't want this Judeo-Christian value system. Let's get away from Jesus. Let's get away from the church. Come on, let's just go live for ourselves, right? It's a mentality. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God is laughing at Klaus Schwab. God is laughing at all these world leaders. Bill Gates, he's laughing at them. What a joke. They're trying to rule the world. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. And who may that be? Who is this king that will be sitting in Jerusalem on Zion's hill ruling the messianic age? Yeshua, I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, said to Yeshua, you are my son, unique son of John chapter one. Today I have begotten you. That's referring to the resurrection. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel obviously referring to the messianic son. And when they asked Jesus at the Sanhedrin, are you the son of God? He says, yes, and you will see the son of man coming on the clouds in glory. Daniel chapter seven. And they, what they did, we have heard the blaspheme of him. Because why? He claimed to be the son of man in Daniel. He was claiming to be God according to the prophets, and that's, they couldn't kill him because they didn't have the, the, the right to kill people, so they had to make Trump up charges to say he's a king, he claims to be king of Israel so that Pilate would crucify him. They knew what he was claiming, and they knew what Psalm 2 said. They knew it. And let me ask you this. We have the Magi, Right? Here we are, there's the statues, there they are. And I, I, I hate to tell you this, but every Christmas I have to tell you this. 
The Magi weren't there when he was born. They came two years later, probably tops. But we put them in our scenes, and we get it. It's all part of the Christmas thing, and sorry. Messes up everything. I always do this. But anyway, what's the point? These guys come from Persia or Babylon, the Fertile Crescent, and they're Magi, which means they're part of the, ma the Magician's Guild in Persia which was taken over by the prophet Daniel when he became the second most uh, guy in charge in not only Babylon, then eventually in Persia, and he was the head of the magicians, and he, he got rid of the Zoroastrianism and put Mosaic Judaism right in there. And because hundreds of years later, these guys know exactly when he has been born, according to the calculations of Daniel. And because they don't have... Uh, rabbinic Judaism in their minds. They come with gold, frankincense, and myrrh to present not only to the king of Israel, because they first they say, where's the king of Israel? Okay, So we know they acknowledge that the king of Israel has been birthed. But then the, the next thing they do is they bow and worship. Wait a second. They're not worshiping a man. The one in the cradle is being worshiped because they know he's Emmanuel. He is God because Daniel told them he would be God. Daniel predicted that he would be God, God in the flesh. And that's why the Magi, without the baggage, say, where's the king of Israel? Let's worship him, he's God, no problem. How did they know? And the rabbinic Israel didn't know because of the rabbis obfuscating this. And the government will be upon his shoulders. You know this passage very well. This is part of the Emmanuel passages. Notice this. His name shall be what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know all that. But you know what it means to the Hebrew mind? Pele, Pele is only used for Yahweh. It's not used for a man. You can't use the word Pele. It means wonderful, that God will do wonders, that he's supernatural, that he's infinite, right? It's powerful. It's only used for God. Mighty God is El Gabor. Wait, wait a second. I know the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you, well, it says mighty God. It doesn't say almighty God. That's what El Gabor means, my, the almighty. That term El Gabor is only used for Yahweh. Everlasting Father, only used for Yahweh. Why? Possessor of eternal life. He possesses eternal life. And then Prince of Peace can go both for Yahweh and man, the God-man. So what you have here Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father are terms that are only used for Yahweh and yet they're being used on the Messianic figure. What does that tell you? What does that tell Israel? He is the God-man. And make no mistake about it. And of course, of the increase of his government, there will be peace and no end upon the throne of David and all the, uh, over his kingdom to order it and establish it with just, uh, judgment and justice for that time. For, uh, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Now, wait a second. Did you hear what it just said? The Messiah will sit on David's throne, which requires a human to sit on that throne because he's got to be in the line of David. But notice, from that time forward, even forever. Wait a second. If he's human, a human dies a human can't go on forever. 
A human has a lifespan. But this messianic figure can sit on David's throne as a human being, but he can sit on it forever, which implies he is not only man, but the eternal one. That's what the, the, the Emmanuel passages are talking about. And there shall come from the root a rod, uh, 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 come from forth a rod from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Again, more Emmanuel passage. What are you talking about? Notice it doesn't say he comes from the stump of David, but he comes from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse is David's dad, okay? Notice it's a stump. What Isaiah is saying, by the time Emmanuel shows up, David's dynasty will basically almost be nothing. There will be nothing but a stump. The, when you think of David, you think of the king, you think of glory, you think of the treasures of David. But when he says Jesse, he wants to remind you of the little hamlet the little village in Bethlehem when David was a little boy and Jesse was the dad and they were in poverty. No status, no social standing, poorer than church mice, okay? That's what the stump of Jesse refers to. Notice where the branch grows. Does it grow out of the stump? She'll grow out of the roots, okay? What does this mean? It means Israel, when your Messiah shows up, it will be like in the days of Jesse, his poverty level. It will not be Ben David, it will be Ben Yosef. Poverty level, no social standing, from nowhere. The line of David is nothing. It's only the second coming that he comes as Ben David in glory. But Israel, he will come first to you this way. How do we know he came this way? What does the narrative say? Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the house of bread, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He had the, the consensus had to do this, right? To be registered with Miriam, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were uh, there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Watch the stump of Jesse. Look at the stump of Jesse. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there's no room for him in the Cataluma. Three things. They are so poor. And they're both from the line of David, right? They are so poor. She doesn't have a baby blanket. So you know what Miriam does? She knows she's gonna have a baby and she's looking around and the first thing she grabs are swaddling clothes. What is swaddling clothes? They are grave clothes that you would wrap a dead body in. That's all she could find. She's so poor. She gets grave clothes and wraps up the Messiah in grave clothes, foreshadowing his future death, that the child was born to die. Wrapping him in grave clothes, that's how poor they are? Yeah, and then it says they laid him in a manger. Why a manger? 
because there was no room for them, and I know it says like in the inn in your, in your Bible, and it's not, that's not like a British tavern. It's not like that at all. That's just terrible. It's Cataluma. It means a, a, a caravansary or a con. This is what it looks like. And they had these caravansaries or cons in Israel, and you would go stay there for free um, if you didn't have money, and you could stay there at night, you put the animals on the ground, and you stay on the top. And they have these in the Middle East still, and you can see them, and, and that's what a cataluma is. So no room in the cataluma. Guess what? I don't have any money to rent a house or anything because we're so poor. Where do they end up? A cave in Bethlehem. They end up in a cave, and so she's wrapping him in grave clothes. They're in a cave, and she puts him in a feeding trough. A feeding trough. The, the, the Alpha and the Omega is in a feeding trough. That's the stump of Jesse. That's the stump. And then when they go to dedicate him, what happens? They have to dedicate him and unfortunately, they're so poor, they can only give two turtle doves or two young pigeons because it requires a lamb sacrifice. But according to Leviticus 12, if you were poor, you could offer the, the birds instead of the lamb. And they're so poor, when they dedicate Jesus, they can only offer the birds. That is where the house of David was when Messiah was born. According to the prophets, he will come out of the stump of Jesse. But he doesn't stay there. That's where he arises from. And out of that will come a kingdom and a rule and a reign once he finishes the work of redemption. And when he comes back, and then we go to the application of Isaiah chapter 12, the end of the book of Emmanuel. What's the application? And in that day, you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. That's what everybody says in here that I was saved. He was angry at us, but now we are saved, and he's not. We find comfort in him. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yahweh is my strength and song. He also becomes, uh, he, he has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, and will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day, you will say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the people. Make mention of his name is exalted. That his name is exalted. What is that? Evangelism. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion. For great is the Holy One in Israel in your midst. And great is he in your midst because now you have Emmanuel. He is with you. He lives inside of you. And because of that, you have the waters of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this, this, this pa these passages in Isaiah that talk about the wonderful Emmanuel, Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man, and Father, may we do what's exactly what Isaiah talked about. Shout it from the rooftops to everybody we know to tell them the good news of Emmanuel is now with us and that they can have that relationship with him, Father. Bless us as we go and may we be blessed for Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, 
we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.